Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith America podcast. This is volume 102, and we're going to spend today just kind of breaking down the last week. Rather than have a guest, we do have a couple of recorded interviews already completed, but we're going to spend today just kind of reliving my experience with NASCAR last week as well as our thoughts on the last dance. And I want to discuss in a little greater depth regarding the feature series that I'm doing called Sidelines to Frontlines on former SEC athletes who are serving or have served on the front lines of this unbelievable pandemic. But first, uh, to start, I just want to break down what a unique week it was uh, for me and everything that went into NASCAR returning to competition. I think that between Ryan McGee and myself, we did as much NASCAR coverage on ESPN platforms as we've probably done combined in the past several years. Uh, We were collectively on every single platform uh, there was to do to, to try to break down the extensive meticulous measures that NASCAR took to ensure that when they did return, it was the right way. And I am the first guy to be critical when I think they do something wrong or something ill-advised. So I'm going to be the first to praise them when I think they did it really well. And in this case, they did it really well. And the result was an unbelievably well-viewed race. And, of course, there's a lot of layers and variables there that – probably the not the least of which was the insatiable desire for fans all over the country to see live sports and bet on live sports, quite frankly. Uh, so I started last week in terms of this saturation of NASCAR coverage by gaining access for a day at the Ganassi Racing Shop in Concord, and that is Chip Ganassi Racing. They have two cup cars driven by Kurt Busch and Matt Kenseth now. That's one other thing that was really interesting to me about NASCAR's return, were all the storylines involved that didn't even deal with the coronavirus scenario. Matt Kenseth driving the number 42 car after not having been in the seat in 18 months, uh, replacing Kyle Larson, who, of course, was fired, after using a racial slur during a virtual race while NASCAR was unable to compete. Um, Matt comes back, and all he does is drive that thing to a top-ten finish. Uh, Just remarkable. Uh, Not surprising at all to any of us who know how amazing he is, but still just, just really well done by him and that entire team to have that kind of performance in that first race back. Also, Ryan Newman's return. Newman, of course, had that horrific crash on the last lap of the Daytona 500 where he was coming to the checkered flag and was clipped by another car, slammed the outside wall, flipped upside down, and was impacted in the driver door by yet another car. Where everyone involved whether it was competitors, spectators on hand, millions of viewers all over the world, feared the worst. And a couple days after that, Newman walks out of the hospital hand-in-hand with his daughters, having suffered what he calls a brain bruise. He told the media that he did 
get diagnosed with a concussion by some doctors, and then other doctors did not diagnose him with a concussion, so he considers his injury a brain bruise. And there he was at Darlington, South Carolina on Sunday in the number six car and ran extremely well. So there's that. And then there's Kevin Harvick, who wins the Darlington race, earning his 50th career victory in the Cup Series, which is just amazing. And if you think about Kevin's career, I said this on on Sunday evening, if you think about Kevin's career, 50 wins at the highest level, a champion in 2014 at the highest level, a two-time Xfinity Series champion, a Daytona 500 winner, and a multiple Brickyard 400 winner. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. And he's going to be able to take that exact same car back to Darlington to run it again. His crew chief, Rodney Childress, said they're not even changing the shocks and springs on the thing. They're taking it back to run again. So just so many storylines around the sport that didn't have anything to do with COVID-19. And then there is the huge COVID-19 scenario. So they went to unbelievable lengths, they being NASCAR and their teams, to ensure that this was done the right way. And there were so many layers to why they did it now, not the least of which money. Follow the money. This allowed them to be first back to market, and with that comes a lot of benefits, all the eyeballs of of playing in your own arena, and ultimately that's what happened. More than 6.3 million people watched that race. That was up nearly 40% year over year. And that's unbelievable. And that's also in a moment when nationally the weather was really good. Had the weather not been as good, the number probably would have been even higher. By coming back now, it allows NASCAR to finish the full 36 race schedule. And that's important because the television contracts and a lot of the sponsor contracts are written in such a way that it represents a 36 race schedule. So all of those things were so important, and all of those things were very difficult to ultimately produce, and what happened, they did it, and I couldn't be more impressed. So, What was it like going to the racetrack, because I've been to one race, and it's crazy how much traffic and people are there. What was it like to just drive right up there and sit there and basically without the noises and a little bit of the traffic, you would think that there wasn't anything going on there. What was that like for you? Very weird. I have covered NASCAR racing professionally since May of 1998. I've never been to the racetrack on race day when it was quiet. And it was a very surreal kind of vibe. It was just a chill summer day, nothing going on at the racetrack. Air. And the closest that I got to the tunnel was about 75 yards, I'm guessing. I wasn't allowed inside the racetrack. There wasn't but one reporter in there, and that was Regan Smith from Fox Sports. And there were four reporters in the press box. Uh, I was not allowed to be inside the track. I was stationed with a cameraman, my boy Chris Bell, outside of turn three 
in the shadow of the Earnhardt Tower. And there were only two other reporting outlets there, Fox News and some, I think it was NBC News maybe, were there as well doing some live shots throughout the day. And then I saw Jay Busby from Yahoo was there. He was stationed outside as well with with me. And nobody was within 30 or 40 yards of each other. And we watched the race on the Fox Sports app was the only way I could see it. And NASCAR did have a way for the people outside to see it, like the in-car camera feeds and the scoring feed and whatnot. They supplied us that, but I couldn't see the broadcast, so I watched it on the Fox Sports app. So I was actually behind those of you watching at home. It was more delayed than you guys watching at home. But uh, here in the beautiful symphony that is those engines, I did leave my station and walk over as close as I could get to the track, as close as I was allowed as the race began. And hearing that beautiful symphony of engines again was awesome. It really did roar sports back to life. But to see them do it with no fans, it was interesting to hear Harvick say how odd and surreal it was for him to win the race and do burnouts and be so amped to get that victory, again, the 50th of his career, and get out and it's quiet. There's no fans cheering him. There's no fans booing him. There's nothing. There's no pit crew there to celebrate with. There's no... You know, bush light being just sprayed everywhere. It was a weird sight to watch. And it it truly drove home to him how vital the fans are to the fabric of sport. And so all of that said, I don't think that NASCAR could have had a better return. I don't, like nobody, I asked myself, I asked Tom Bryant, who is, is NASCAR's, executive in charge of all of those at-track logistics. And, guys, there were things involved that you guys don't even know about that were uh, being shuffled around all the way up until race day. And Tom told me that no one was any type of concern during the pre-race screening procedures. And... Everyone was so good and meticulous and and aware that they needed to adhere to these protocols, and they did that, and it just went really well. Um, the funniest part of the day for me was I was sitting in my truck with the air conditioning on because it was hotter than 40 hells down there in PD region of South Carolina and so humid I could have pulled out a knife and cut the air for a snack if I wanted to. So I'm sitting in my truck with the AC on, and this Darlington County deputy comes screaming up. She rolls her window down, and I rolled my window down. She goes, is that drone yours? I said, no, ma'am, we don't have a drone. I said, but I'll give you 100 bucks if you shoot that bitch out of the sky. It was foxes, wasn't it? I don't think it was foxes. Oh, okay. No, they had they had a boxes. I think it was somebody else's, and I don't know whose it was, so I can't say. But I have a real good idea of whose it was. Um, so 
It was a really unique day and a, and, a, and a long day because we didn't stay in hotels. We Both Chris and myself left our houses around 5 a.m., 4.45 a.m. Sunday morning and drove down to the racetrack. We did a couple live shots, a bunch of live shots in the morning of the race. And then we sat and waited for the race to run in case something happened. What if Ryan Newman won that race? What if uh, he happened to be in another accident during that race? What if Kenseth won that race? What if there was a storyline that was just remarkable, even more remarkable than Harvick winning 50, and they needed us there on site? So we stayed as we should. And uh, when the race was over, we jumped back on the highway and drove home. I think I got home. Uh, I don't know what time I got home. I forget. It had to be nice being able to leave the track without all the traffic that you normally would have to deal now, that with. That part was amazing. Yes. Uh, not even having that anxiety. There's a lot of anxiety that comes with that, uh, typically. And there was none of that anxiety that day. I also want to beat the transporters out because... I didn't want to. I, I knew they were going to be given def, They were going to be given the opportunity to leave when they were ready to leave, and that they might. I don't. I don't know this, but I expected they might hold up other traffic while the haulers and transporters and safety vehicles and whatever else was inside the racetrack were leaving. Uh, you know, I thought that they might hold us up. So, um. It was just a neat experience. I, I feel blessed that I got the opportunity to be part of history. Uh, and I was part of history, and I know that. And that was really interesting and unique. They have another race coming up Wednesday night. How do you expect it to be different, especially at the start, considering that these guys now just got off that track and have a feel for it and they haven't been sitting at home for a few weeks without racing? Do you expect it to be back? To a normal start, do you think it'll still kind of be a little off the gas, a little going into turn one? I think it depends on where you are starting. I, it's going to be aggressive because they now have a, a better understanding, having just been in the car for 400 miles the other day. But you still have to be smart. Look, it's, I mean, it's Darlington, South Carolina. It's one of the more difficult tracks. One of the things about Darlington is – you better race the track first. You race the track first, and then you worry about the competitors. Because if you, like Denny Hamlin told me going in Sunday morning, I asked him what his emotions were on his ride down, and his entire thought process was he was going to go to his motor home when he got there, go over detailed notes, and really focus on the mental aspect because there are, intricacies and nuances involved in racing that track that don't exist elsewhere and are exacerbated by the fact that they hadn't been in the car. Things that are second nature typically if they've been in the car that were not second nature early in the race on Sunday because they hadn't had those reps. And now they've had those reps so I would thereby assume that they'll be willing to be a little bit more aggressive. There's one other really cool storyline that's involved in this NASCAR return, Travis, that I don't know if it's gotten enough press, and that includes me. That's Kyle Busch running every single one of the races. He's going to run seven races in 11 days across all three series, four cup, two Xfinity, one truck, 
He's going to run every one of them. And he's going to win more than one, I think. Uh, I was asked by a friend who he should bet on at Darlington on Sunday, and I told him Kyle Busch, and then Kyle Busch got sent to the rear. He failed inspection twice, pre-race inspection twice, and still drove all the way to fifth before he had to pit late in the race. Uh, He drove his ass off. And he's going to win a couple of those races, I think. Um, I have so much passion for that sport. I care so much about it. I'm grateful to Chip Ganassi Racing for letting me have that day on on Wednesday of the week leading up to the race because it gave our viewership on SportsCenter and whatnot a look at the differences, and the differences were dramatic. So that was really fun. Uh, I enjoyed having the opportunity to do all that and and show the inside of that shop. And normally there's 200 people working in there, and there was only 40 while I was there, all of them wearing masks the entire time, and they worked in shifts. The second shift came in at 3, and there was only 20 of them. So they worked really hard to, to adhere to those protocols and have social distancing. So... Kudos to NASCAR, man. I give them all the credit in the world. Thanks so much. Uh, NASCAR President Steve Phelps joined McGee and me on Marty and McGee and was really candid about everything involved and how he had had a conversation with Mark Tatum, NBA executive, and Tatum told Steve, somebody has to have courage, somebody has to be first, and we're all really cheering for you, man, that you can show the world that we can come back and compete. And that's exactly what NASCAR did. So I'm I'm thrilled for them. I'm proud of them. I'm happy for them because all of that hard work definitely paid off on Sunday, and I can't wait to see what Wednesday looks like. That's another thing here that is beneficial to NASCAR is that they're going to be able to go ahead and do those midweek races that they had really surveyed over the last couple of years in board meetings and fan councils and everything else. What would a Wednesday night primetime race look like? And now we're going to get to see that. So I'm excited about it. I was just happy that I had something to watch. And then, lo and behold, my boy driving the Bush light car got the victory. That's when I first got into the sport was 2014. And the reason I picked Harvick was at the time he was driving the Budweiser car. And that was the reason I picked him. And he actually won the title that year. And now he comes back and gives me a victory. So Sunday was we had golf to start the day off, NASCAR, and then the finale for the last dance. So last last Sunday was probably the best day during this quarantine for me. The last dance was amazing. I just I I can't begin to say enough superlatives about how great it was, start to finish, and how I've none of us have ever seen Michael Jordan in that way. He's a very mysterious figure to me because. During the run, his brand was so meticulously crafted, honed, disseminated. As was stated on the documentary itself, there was no social media. I think Andrea Kramer, the longtime brilliant reporter, said there was no window into his life other than what he and the Bulls and Nike and Gatorade crafted. And so this was so raw, so genuine, so 
unique that I learned so much about him. I learned about the type of teammate he was. I learned about the demands that he not only carried for himself, but for the management level of the organization and for the men that went to battle with him on a daily basis. So I just couldn't I couldn't get enough of it. I hate that it's over. I love that we had Craig Elo on and could break down what that moment meant not only for him but for the Cavaliers and in his estimation propelled Michael into a new stratosphere. And I agree with that completely. I think that's a line of demarcation in Jordan's career. I think there's before the shot and after the shot. And probably of all the amazing moments in that series, the most amazing to me was the last couple of minutes of Episode 7 when they dove into those demands that he had for his teammates and Michael explained, well, if you got a problem with that, you ain't never won anything. And then he breaks down emotionally. And I put on social media, I posed the question to the following, why the following believed that Michael broke down in that moment. What's your perspective on that? I think one of the biggest things, Marty, for him was, I think he realized over the years the kind of teammate he was and how difficult he might be to be around. But when you're hearing somebody and also when you're looking back on it, it's a little different because when you're in the moment, you can rationalize it as, I'm winning you guys a ring, yada, yada, yada. But then when you're looking back on it, you're seeing it, and you have that those years of life that now you've raised your own kids and different things. And so it just all came to him, and it just created this perfect moment where Van Pelt was the first one I saw tweet it. They could have ended the documentary right there with that. Mm-hmm. That ending was just amazing. The way that I see it is this. I think that in the moment of driving those teammates so hard, it all made perfect sense to him because that's how he is wired. He was the alpha, and and the way that he was wired proved successful. It all made perfect sense, and in that moment, you don't give a damn what anyone thinks about you because what you're doing is works. It is validated every day because you're the greatest of all time. No one can guard you. No one can touch you. And your indomitable will can overcome everything in your path. However, when you retire from the game, especially all these years after doing so, more and more and more vulnerability starts to creep in because the game went on. The game went on. I wrote a column once called Athletes Die Twice on ESPN.com. And I interviewed myriad people, myriad former professional athletes who were champion-level athletes about what it feels like when you're done. Because your entire identity is gone, and you have to rewrite whatever that identity is. And that's a very difficult thing to reconcile. So... As time goes on and you realize the game rolls on and more stars come along, then you become more and more and more and more and more vulnerable. And suddenly, 
the, hum, the, the basic human desire to be liked and accepted becomes more and more prevalent in your life. And when you don't have that, that is gutting. And the way I read what I just saw, there's going to, Travis, there's going to be 20 page dissertations written in psychology classes about this. No doubt in my mind. There are going to be theses, theses, I don't know how you say it. College students will write their thesis on what we just saw and the psychology involved in it. Guaranteed. Because what I see is someone who has suppressed that, the way that that two minutes went down from if you feel that way, it's because you ain't never won anything to break. Because he was overwhelmed emotionally at the thought that all those guys that he spent all that time with on all those airplanes and all those buses and all those practices and all those meetings and he could always pull along were saying what they were saying. Now, in their 50s. That's hard. I would, you know me. My greatest insecurity is what? I like to be liked. We all do. I think it's a basic human desire. And so that's what I read there. And wow, was it unbelievable uh, television. Can we? Unbelievable speaking television. Of, speaking of interesting people, can we just get into Rodman skipping practice to go to W's? Like, can you imagine if an athlete did that today? Just think about. We freak out when OBJ on an off week goes down to Miami. Can you imagine if somebody did that nowadays, went missing during the NBA Finals? No, I can't because they would just be vilified on every single show the entire time. And so would the coaches and so would, like, every, admit, like the team's gone crazy. You know, I don't know. Like, what, what I learned, I already knew it, but what I learned from there is what made Phil Jackson so great is – he knew how to individually coach each player. Sometimes you have to push the player. Sometimes you have to pull back. Sometimes you have to yell. And he was able to handle a team with the greatest player ever, a guy of Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen, and the role players. Just absolutely amazing. I think one of the other things coming out of this documentary is just how great Phil was. We knew it, but you got to see even more in detail just how great he was to handle all of those characters. You're right. It reminded me and it heightened my awareness of how brilliant Phil was and what a, what a brilliant psychologist he was in the way that he did manage all those personalities. I can't imagine what that must have been like because, we again, we see Michael's personality and how Michael – another thing, like you see Michael go at Phil sometimes in the in the huddle of games. Man, we ain't doing that. How many guys get away with that? And congratulations to everyone involved in the production. I actually stopped after the first couple episodes. I I slow motioned through the credits just to see how many people I knew that were involved in it, and it's a lot of people. And I'm I'm very I'm very happy for them and proud for them that they've had this moment of brilliance and that it was just so well done. Um, I'm 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 just grateful that I got to see it, and 
it really helped tie me over and give us all something to look forward to. Congratulations to those guys, too, for being able to pull off what they pulled off. I don't know if you guys understand how difficult it is to have a deadline of June and then all of a sudden a deadline of April. Well, I remember people asked, why don't why doesn't ESPN air it? I'm like, because most likely it's not done yet. And they even came out and said John Stockton was, I think, the last interview, and the director wasn't allowed to fly up there, so they had to have a producer up there ask the questions. They sent him the questions. But, like, I think they said, like, March 10th they were interviewing John Stockton. I could be off on the date, but, like, they had to fast-track this thing. It wasn't like it was just sitting there ready to be aired. It was still in the process of they were they finished an episode while the other ones were already aired. Like, that's how crazy it was. Is they're airing, you know, episodes one and two, and they're finishing up six and seven. Pretty brilliant, isn't it? Uh, it's it's amazing. and It's remarkable. I'm looking forward to some of the other ones that they're pushing out to help us with this time. And one last thing about The Last Dance. Jalen and Jacoby have done an awesome job in – the aftermath of those shows, breaking down those shows. Of course, Jalen played against Michael, so he has great insight there. What that was like, he was really great in the documentary, discussing the Pacers' mindset as they face the Bulls. And they've done a great job with their after show. That is going to continue this Sunday following Lance, which is part one of what is certain to be another Amazing two-part 30 for 30 on Lance Armstrong's rise and fall in the sports world. Hear from Lance Armstrong himself in that film that insists the audience makes its own interpretation of one of the biggest doping scandals in the history of sport. Make sure you guys tune into that. That documentary is going to be amazing. We'll be talking about it, I'm sure, because he's a polarizing figure even today. And... uh Make sure you check it out. I certainly will. I want to talk about one more thing quickly before we get out of here. That is these features that I'm doing about COVID-19 and the former Southeastern Conference athletes who are fighting this virus on the front lines or have very courageously fought on the front lines. The latest one that I did is on a young lady named Shana Hudson who her story is is even more remarkable than some of the others. They're all they're all really cool and really insightful and really eye opening to me personally about what these guys are doing. But what Shana did is crazy. So she she played soccer at the University of Florida. She was a starter for the she started the final sixty three games of her career. She won back-to-back SEC titles as a member of, the, of that program. She went to nursing school, got a degree. She worked in an ICU for several years, and then she went to South Florida, University of South Florida, and just this past December got her master's degree as an anesthetist. And she was awaiting her appointment, and all of the elective surgeries – had been canceled or postponed due to COVID. And she had this amazing skill set, like unbelievable skill set that she knew belonged at the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Manhattan, New York City. So she packed a bag with some clothes and a couple N95 masks, not knowing what PPE there may be up there or not. She threw those in a bag and got on a Southwest Airlines flight from Tampa to New York City and went straight into the eye of the hurricane, man, and stayed there for a month. And listening to her detail, what she experienced was courage that I admire, and I don't know if I have that courage in me. I don't know if I would have the balls to do what she did. She stayed in a hotel for 25 days. She worked 12-plus-hour shifts. She told stories of working on one very sick patient and another one right next door coding and having to run out of that room and run into the next room to assist the physicians who were assisting that patient who was dying. And you think about that, and you think about what it's like to see that every day. And I asked Shana, which I had not asked the other physicians with whom I had spoken and interviewed, what concern did she have for post-traumatic stress? She's dealing with that every day. She doesn't know. She doesn't know what she has or doesn't have. It's something that she's dealing with on a day-to-day basis, and she's aware of what she's experienced, and so she's very self-aware of what that daily walk might look like and how to be aware of what it might be. She doesn't have it right now. She doesn't feel it right now, but she's aware of what could happen. And that's very real, what these doctors and nurses and first responders I know it's something that they're used to. They're used to seeing trauma. They're used to seeing people pass away, but this is a different thing. And, you know, having being charged with getting families on FaceTime so that they can talk to their loved ones for the last time, those types of things, man, that sticks with you. I don't know that I would have the courage to do what Shana did. I mean, she's a, she's a badass, man. She is a Florida Gator. She is a South Florida bull. She is American, courageous American hero. And I am grateful to her for her example. I've told her that so many times I think she's tired of it. Well, and also, Marty, you have have to think about this also, Marty, is normally they might be used to dealing with patients dying and being sick or whatever, but they don't have that fear of themselves contracting whatever the patient has, and then they have to go home and they – spend 20 minutes in their garage changing so that what they bring into the house isn't going to have it. Like there's all that added mental just stress because this isn't just what's going on in their hospital. It's a worldly thing. So they're carrying it with them everywhere they go. You never escape it. You never escape it. And I just did my, I'm grateful for people like them. I am, uh, we are indebted to them. I th- the other thing that I, I really appreciate about this is we know that, you know, the athletes are, you know, going on and doing other things from the most – a lot of the sports they don't – you know, we focus on college football here, but there's all these other sports where these kids are going out there competing, but in the same time they're they're going to class and getting these amazing degrees, and now you're able to see, you know, hey, you know, that scholarship, you know, for the baseball player or the track or whatever – helped create this amazing doctor that is out there doing amazing things for us. 
It's beautiful. That that that's one thing about this that's beautiful is the awareness of what these folks do every day and that they serve the community every day and they don't do it for praise. They don't want to be called heroes. It's just what they do. It's what they the, every one of them has said it. It's what I signed up for. But to your point, when you are battling an unknown enemy, when you are battling a faceless enemy when you are battling an enemy that will kill you. It's like Dr. T.J. Sioye said to me during my interview with him. He played basketball at Missouri for Quinn Snyder. Uh, he was a very good basketball player in college, athletic freak, ran a 4-3-40, just an animal on the basketball floor. And he said they, they, are, they are people of faith, he and his family, his wife and children, are people of faith, and he said every single day when he goes to work, morning or night, he has to remind his family, they pray that he's going to come home okay, but that every single day, it's like a soldier going to war. He is going to war against an enemy that is killing dozens of thousands of people in this country. And he does it every day because he wants to be part of the solution. And he is part of the solution. And I admire them. So thank you all. We appreciate you tuning in. Hope you enjoyed that. Let us know at Marty Smith ESPN on both Twitter and Instagram. I love all the notes I'm getting from you guys about your response to the interviews. We love doing them. I've gotten amazing responses about T.J. Watt, about Lane Kiffin, about Reese Davis, everybody up in Wazoo, up in Coog Nation, loves how complimentary Reese was of you and how his favorite trip ever was finally making it up there to Old Crimson and uh, and Wazoo. So thank you guys for all the notes. Please let us know your thoughts on this one and how and what your reaction is to just Travis and I rapping a little bit about everything that we've experienced here this past week. Be good. Be safe. Adhere to your social distancing protocol and wear your masks. I've had people call me a, I, I was in a, I mean, it's amazing how people respond. I, I wore a mask at Darlington and a lot of people think I'm being a complete pansy and that it's not even real. Well, if, uh, if I have infectious disease experts telling me to wear one, I'm wearing one. I'm okay. To each his own. I, as you should be. I'm just a little upset that you didn't get a mask that matched your jackets. I, I assume that you were reaching out to uh, your your suit people and saying, "Hey, can I any way that I can get a, a mask fast, fast track that'll match my suit?" Because I expected that the camo was a good backup, though. I do appreciate you rocking some camo. Camo wins, man. Camo wins. I mean, I need a camo suit. That'll fix everything. Uh, all right. I appreciate it, dude. Thank you guys so much. Marty Smith's America, Volume 102. We'll try better next time around. Be well.